we're going to start in the next uh, couple of, well, not this week, obviously, because we're skipping a little bit, but the next uh, couple of lessons are going to be on the incarnation of Jesus, uh, picking up in the statement of faith. Uh, let's see here. Malachi, this isn't working again. There we go. Okay. Uh, we already covered the, the first sentence there about Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus being God. Uh, now we're moving on to the next sentence, which says, Jesus was sent by the Father to redeem people from their sin and, and rule them righteously. And then the next sentence kind of gets into uh, virgin birth, incarnation, things like that. We're going to talk about that next time. Um, so I, I decided to kind of split this into two. We're going to save basically how Jesus became a human while still being God. We're going to save that. Um, today, we're going to talk about why Jesus came. Um, and I, I have four reasons here, basically, that are come from that first sentence that says, um, Jesus was sent by the Father to redeem people from their sin and rule them righteously. And so four reasons why Jesus came to earth. Number one, uh, this is probably the most basic, Jesus came to earth in obedience to the Father's command. Okay, so why did Jesus come to earth? Well, because God the Father had commanded him to. Um, and that's picking up on the concept of eternal subordination of the Son that we talked about in the past. Uh, John 8, verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And so the first and most basic reason why Jesus left heaven and became a human, lived a life here on earth, was because the Father had sent him to do so. And the Son always does what the Father commands. Next, Jesus came to earth to redeem people from their sin. And you see that in the rest of that sentence, that Jesus was sent by the Father to redeem people from their sin and rule them righteously. This is probably the main thing that we think of if I were to ask you. Uh, maybe I should have done that before. Uh, why did Jesus come to earth? This probably would have been the first thing that you think of, well, to die on the cross, to forgive our sins, and so forth. And certainly that is the case. Galatians 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so God the Father sent his Son in order that we would be redeemed, that we could become the sons of God. A couple of quick things on the timing of when Jesus came. You notice there in verse 4 it says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Um, I think, I, I'm not sure why God chose to send Jesus 2,000 years ago. Have you ever thought about that? Why not earlier? Why not 5,000 years ago? Why, why at that point in time in history? Uh, some people have raised objections about that. Like if, if God was really loving and cared about people, he wouldn't, you know, what about all those people who died prior to Jesus? Um, and I think there are several reasons why Jesus came 2,000 years ago. First of all, Jesus came right after um, Alexander the Great had conquered pretty much all of the civilized world a couple hundred years earlier and had established Koine Greek as the language throughout the Roman Empire. Um, and so Greek was the language known across all countries. Everybody was forced to learn Greek. This is part of Alexander's kind of um, theory of how to rule a large kingdom was you forced everybody to learn a common language and to basically adopt Greek principles um, so that you wouldn't have separate factions kind of rebelling against the Greeks. Um, anyways, what that does, though, is when the New Testament letters are written by the apostles, they could be sent all over. 
because everybody could read Greek. That was the standard language used. And so uh, also, Greek is an incredibly precise language, much more so than English. Uh, there's different spellings for words, for example, depending on if it's um, the subject or the direct object or the indirect object. In English, it would all be the same. We would spell it all the same. Okay, so if I say, um, I don't know, David went to the store, David would be spelled, you know, D-A-V-I-D. If I said, I gave a present to David, it would be sp uh, spelled the same way in English. In Greek, you'd have two different spellings there. So in, in Greek, in other words, um, you can tell just by looking at how the, the ending of the word, what function it plays in the sentence, whereas English is much more ambiguous. A lot of times you'll see something and it's like, well, I'm not sure if that's talking about this or that. In Greek, you have genders, you have tenses, you have uh, all of these things. You know, there's 50 different ways to spell the word the in Greek, depending on, on you know, what comes after it. And so that type of precision, um, it's frustrating to people to learn Greek, but it makes for very precise writing, which is important when you're writing scripture. And so the New Testament being written in Koine Greek is very strategic because other languages translating from that, um, there's just not ambiguities for the most part. Uh, it's very precise and it makes uh, a much easier, uh, much easier to understand with clarity what the scriptures are teaching. Also, another reason I think Jesus came 2,000 years ago was he came during the Roman Empire. Um, the Romans had built roads that connected all of their empire. You, you know, you understand they're, they're, uh, the Romans had conquered all of the land from England to India. Okay, huge landmass. And so they had built these, you know, you've heard of the Roman roads, these uh, roads that basically connected all of the empire together and made travel uh, possible really for the first time ever throughout some of these countries. Um, and so, again, this is strategically timed for the spreading of the gospel. Jesus comes, he commissions the apostles, sends them out, and they have the freedom to, to travel from one country to another. There's not really borders under the Roman Empire. It's all one big thing. And so um, all of these things, I think, show us that when Jesus came in the fullness of time, the world was strategically poised for the explosion of the church. Uh, for the scriptures to be written in a language that was common throughout the whole empire, and then for that gospel to spread very quickly, which it obviously did. We see that in the book of Acts. Um, so anyways, that's just a little side note about the fullness of time. But verse 5, God sent Jesus to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So basically, Jesus came to save us. And in order to do that, of course, he had to live a perfect life. He had to die in our place. He had to rise again. All of that we're going to talk about in future weeks. Um, I want to point out, though, how this is worded in our statement. It doesn't just say Jesus was sent to save people from their sins. It says, he was sent by the Father to redeem people from their sins and rule them righteously. And so you see in that sentence a preview of what we believe about salvation, that our sins are forgiven, but that's not all. Jesus also rules us, which leads to the third reason why Jesus came. So number one, he came because he was sent by the Father. Number two, he came to redeem people from their sins. Number three, he came to establish his kingdom on earth. Uh, we've seen many times already in our study of Luke that this was Jesus' main message, right? He came preaching the arrival of God's kingdom. Uh, for example, Mark 1 verse 14 says, After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Okay, so this is a reason that Jesus came. As he himself said in Luke 4, verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Um, Jesus' main message, if you read, especially in the Synoptic Gospels, it's all about the kingdom of God. And as I've said many times, this is not a kingdom with physical boundaries. It's not a, a region of the earth that Jesus rules. Rather, it is a, a realm in which Jesus rules people who submit to him as their king. And so when someone submits to Christ as Lord, when someone becomes a Christian, they are entering the kingdom of Christ. And so another way to talk about uh, the kingdom of Jesus is we might use language like the family of God or the universal church. All of that is talking about the kingdom of God. All Christians all over the world make up Jesus' kingdom. And this was his message that Christ went around proclaiming throughout his earthly ministry. For example, in Luke 8 verse 1, it says, Soon afterward he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And then, of course, he sends out the twelve in the next chapter, verse uh, 1 of chapter 9. He called the twelve together, gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And so this was the thrust of Jesus' ministry. He himself preached the kingdom of God, that it had arrived, um, and the disciples did so as well. And he made very clear that the kingdom of God is not just some future reality, but it was there when Jesus came to earth. Luke 11, verse 20, he said, If I cast out demons, uh, sorry, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so he, he points to the, fact, the, the power that he has to cast out demons, and he says that's evidence that the kingdom of God has arrived on earth. And so this is not just a future reality, it was there, it started when Jesus came. Luke 17, verse 20 being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And so here Jesus clarifies for us the nature of his kingdom. It's not a what we think of as a normal kingdom with physical boundaries. It's not a region of the earth over which a king rules. Rather, the kingdom of God is spiritual. It is Jesus ruling over his people. And becoming a Christian then is becoming a subject to King Jesus. It is entering the kingdom of God. And you can see um, the nature of the kingdom more if you read the book of Acts and you see the way that the apostles spoke of it. It is synonymous. Entering the kingdom of God is synonymous with becoming a follower of Jesus. For example, Acts 8 verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So preaching the good news about God's kingdom is just another way of saying giving them the gospel. It's telling people that Jesus has established the kingdom and they are to submit to his lordship over their lives. Now, let's talk about how the kingdom grows. Um, the disciples, of course, were very confused about this. They were expecting the kingdom to come all at once. The Roman uh, government would be overthrown and Jesus would set up his throne in Jerusalem. That's what they were looking forward to. Uh, Luke 19.11 shows us this as they heard these things. He proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So they thought when God establishes his kingdom on earth, it's going to happen all at once. And so Jesus said, I'm establishing the kingdom. The kingdom's at hand. And so they thought, okay, well, here it comes. Uh, he's going to set up his throne. He's going to overthrow the enemies and rule over the nations. 
But that is not how God's kingdom comes. Instead, Jesus said it grows like a mustard seed. Uh, Luke 13, 18, he said, Therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And so the kingdom starts off small, like a tiny mustard seed, and it grows slowly over time until it overspreads the earth. It grows one person at a time. Uh, every time a sinner submits to the lordship of Jesus, the kingdom is growing. And the, and the gospel will continue to grow until the whole world is under the rule and authority of Jesus. Okay, a uh, quick pop quiz here. Where is Jesus right now? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Where is Jesus right now, specifically? In heaven, specifically. More specific than that. Right hand of the Father, right. Okay, that's what, Jesus, that's what you know, Stephen, when he's stoned, he looks up, he sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father. We see this over and over in the New Testament. Okay, so he's at the right hand of the Father. What is he doing there? Is he just sitting at the right hand of the Father? What is the, the picture, the image that we are given over and over in the Psalms especially? Intercessor, okay, that's part of it for sure. But I'm thinking specifically of the image of Jesus sitting at God's right hand. Okay, he's ruling. <laughs> he's ruling his kingdom. We're going to get to this more later. Um, for example, Psalm 110, verse 1. We've seen this before, I think, in, in, uh, in the past. The Lord, Yahweh says to my Lord, so this is the Father speaking to Jesus, and Jesus clarifies that in the New Testament. He says that he's talking about him. Uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. <clears throat> okay, and so Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that means uh, his enemies are currently being conquered. And they're being conquered by the spread of the gospel. That's what it means there. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, the gospel will continue to spread and, and overspread the earth until every rival power is brought down and all the nations are evangelized. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 24. The gospel, this gospel of the kingdom <clears throat> will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And so just like a mustard seed starts off very small, grows slowly over time, so the kingdom of God starts small, and it grows until the earth is, as Hosea says, as full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Uh, the gospel of the kingdom is preached through the whole world to all nations, and then the end comes. Okay, well, what happens at the end? We find out in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, then, uh, then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so here we get the image. Jesus is ruling right now. He's reigning at the right hand of the Father, and he's going to reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet. Until every rule and authority and rival power is destroyed, the whole earth is full of the knowledge of God, in other words, basically, all the nations are in submission to Jesus. Then he turns the kingdom over to his father. <clears throat> so that's, that's 1 Corinthians 15. After all the nations have been won to Christ, all the world is in submission to Jesus. Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And then you notice there it says, the last enemy to, to be destroyed is death itself, meaning that we go on living forever in this kingdom, ruled by Jesus perfectly, uh, with no dissenters left. That's the eternal kingdom. 
where Christ returns bodily to Jerusalem and he, he takes his seat on the throne uh, and rules over our world. So, putting all of this together then, we get a fourth reason for why Jesus came. Okay, he came because the Father sent him. He came to redeem us from our sins. He came to establish the kingdom. Number four, Jesus came to save the world. <clears throat> Sin ruined the world. We see that right in the beginning of the pages of Scripture. And the gospel is fixing it. Uh, when people across the planet are in subjection to Christ, the last enemy of death is then defeated. And the world will be restored to the Eden ideal. Man and God will be in perfect communion. Paradise will be regained. And this is why Jesus came. Uh, a lot of Christians think that God is basically done with this world. Uh, we tend to think that because sin ruined the world, we get saved and then we get whisked off to heaven. Uh, that is not God's plan. He's not just going to nuke the earth and then take us to heaven forever. God's fixing our broken earth. Uh, for example, Matthew 5, verse 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, let's think about what that's saying. Um, would it be okay for me to say, uh, Blessed are the proud, for they shall inherit the earth. How many of you think that's an okay little tweak to that? Not at all, right? That's the opposite of what it's saying. Okay, and we think, well, we would never do that. But what do we do with the last half of that sentence? We think, blessed are the meek, for they will go to heaven when they die. <laughs> blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit heaven. That's not what it says. That's the, in fact, that's the exact opposite of what it says. It says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so God is not done with our planet. He hasn't condemned the planet to flames and destruction in order to take us to heaven. Uh, no, God is saving the planet. He is redeeming our earth through the gospel of Christ. And so that's the fourth reason that Jesus came. And it's connected to the establishment of his kingdom. Uh, he came to set in motion the recreation, the setting right of things here on earth. This is what Jesus said in John 3. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Okay, well, what, what does that mean? Does God save every single person that has ever lived on the planet? Of course not. We know that's not true. Is everybody, was everyone on the planet when Jesus came? Did they all, uh, were they all saved? No. We know many of them were lost. Okay, so then what, what does this verse mean? That God sent Jesus in order to save the world. If it doesn't mean he's going to save every single person that's ever lived, in my mind, the only thing that this can mean is that God is slowly, over time, through the spreading of the gospel, saving the world. And there will come a day when all the earth is in submission to Christ. Sin will be eradicated from the earth, and the world will be what God made it to be to begin with. 1 John 4, verse 14, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. God's rescue plan is a lot bigger than we tend to think of it. He, isn't just here, he didn't just come to save you from your sins. He isn't just saving a few of us. He is conquering nations through the blood of his cross. This is what Revelation says in Revelation eleven fifteen. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So there is a future sense uh, that we talk about the kingdom, right? We're only experiencing the infancy of God's kingdom now. But at the end of history, the whole world will be in subjection to Christ. This is Philippians 2. Every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that Christ is Lord. Okay, And he will reign forever and ever. But notice, he's not reigning up in heaven now. He's reigning on earth. 
It says that the kingdoms of this world have become submissive to Christ. And he's going to reign over the earth forever and ever. Uh, this is what was prophesied in Psalm 2. Very important messianic psalm, Psalm 2, verse 6. As for me, I have set my king, this is God speaking, my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Does anybody remember what that's talking about? Pop quiz from a couple of weeks ago. This is my son. Today I've begotten you. What's that talking about? Yeah, it's talking about Jesus, obviously. What does it mean, today I've begotten you? Okay. Let's go, let's go to Acts 13, because we get the answer there. Um, this, is, this, is, uh, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, and so he's, he's clearly pointing to this text. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And so you see in verse, uh, back to verse 33, when he says, this he has fulfilled to us by raising Jesus, then he points to the second psalm. So when he says, today I've given you life, today I've begotten you, it's talking about the resurrection of Christ. Okay, so uh, Christ dies, God raises Christ up from the dead. And then back in verse 6, as for me, I've set my king on, uh, I'm sorry, this is Psalm 2, 6. We're back to Psalm 2. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then look at verse 8. Immediately after the resurrection of Christ, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Okay, so after Jesus is raised from the dead, the nations and the ends of the earth are given to the Son. And that's where we are now. Uh, remember at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, the world will be in submission to Christ. And then he delivers the world to God the Father. All of the earth will be submissive to Christ. Right now, we're in the process of evangelizing the world. Okay, so, so Christ started the kingdom when he came. He dies, he rises again, and then he leaves it in our hands uh, to spread this gospel to all nations. And eventually, the ends of the earth will be Christ's possession. The gospel will spread to all nations before verse 8 is completed. The ends of the earth belong to him. And when he's ruling over all the world and all the earth is his possession, then he returns to the earth and he sits enthroned in Jerusalem. And so we've got these four reasons. Why did Jesus come to earth? Number one, in obedience to the Father. Number two, to redeem us from our sins. Number three, to establish his kingdom on earth. Number four, to save the world from the curse of... Uh, to save the world from the curse of sin. And so he is, he is fixing our broken earth. He is, uh, some theologians will call this reversing the curse, right? Everything that went wrong in Genesis uh, 3, God is fixing through Christ. And all of this is summed up in this one sentence in our statement of faith. Jesus was sent by the Father to redeem people from their sin and rule them righteously. All right, we have, I think, five minutes here. Any questions? I know I covered... A lot of uh, eschatological stuff. Catherine. All nations will be, yes. Well, I don't mean everyone in history, obviously. We do have lost people.
Well, nobody really argues that, that at some point that's going to happen, yes. That, that when Jesus, the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus is reigning, nobody's rivaling his authority. Yeah, I didn't get into the weeds of what all happens in between, because I think that's, there are a lot of different interpretations about that. Um, and quite frankly, I think there's a lot of uh, dogmatic opinions without a whole lot of scripture behind them. I think, uh, I don't know if I would disagree with what you said, though. I think the gospel will spread to all the ends of the earth before the end comes. That's Matthew 24, 14. Every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, Philippians 2. Yes, I, I believe that the gospel will continue to spread like the mustard seed until it overspreads the earth. Now, does, will there be anyone left who is still in rebellion to Christ and then Jesus comes and judges them? Quite possibly. Again, some of those things are up to how you interpret Revelation, quite frankly. Um, whether that's talking about past events or future events. But, in other words, the Great Commission, I believe, will be successful. That the gospel will go to all nations. And that all nations will submit to Christ. Now, does that mean every single person in those nations or just a majority you know, what's the percentage there? Is it 75%? I don't know. Um, but the world will be his possession. And he will reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet. And I don't, personally, I don't think that happens by him coming and killing everybody. Okay, I think Jesus conquers by the blood of his cross. I think Jesus conquers by the spreading of the, of the gospel of the kingdom. Well, it's interesting because in that text in um, Philippians 2, uh, let me just find it here. So uh, Philippians 2, starting verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Obviously talking about him becoming a human being. Uh, verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, so because of what Jesus did in obedience to the Father dying on the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and, given, uh, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if you put that together, especially with 1 Corinthians 15, which to me is a very key text on this, um, it does seem to me that Christ has exalted him. He has put him at his right hand. And I don't believe Jesus leaves the right hand until the earth is in submission to Christ. So we are spreading the gospel. In other words, you know, a lot of people think Jesus is coming again you know, in the next 10 years or something. And I think it's foolish you know, to make projections about when Jesus is returning. If, if I had to guess, I would say we have another 10,000 years. Okay, I don't think he's coming anytime soon. I think the gospel has to spread to the whole earth before Christ returns. Uh, are we anywhere near saying 
that the earth is his possessions, that the nations are in subjection to Jesus. I don't see that. Um, so yeah, I think I think in some sense we're in the early church still. We don't think of that because 2,000 years, that's so long. Uh, well, maybe we're just getting started. Now, certainly if you look at the way the gospel has spread from the time of Jesus until now, I mean, good grief, we've made huge progress, right? The gospel is all over the globe, and it started out in the middle of Israel. I mean, here we are in, in Indiana on the other side of the planet talking about Jesus. Obviously, yes, the gospel has spread dramatically. But we have a long ways to go <laughs> before we can say the earth is as full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Uh, or, you know, another prophecy, I think it's Joel, that says no one will need to be taught of God because everybody will know him. Like, that, everyone on the planet will have heard the gospel at some point. So, yes, go ahead. Well, I mean, so that's, yes, that is a, a very common, quite frankly, American interpretation. Um, and I don't want to be too harsh, but I think it's based a lot on uh, some popular books and movies and not as much on scripture. Um, there are, now, to be fair, there are some texts in Revelation where there's images of judgment and things. Sure. But, I, you know, the text doesn't say every knee is going to bow because God's crushing them and forcing them to. Um, I, I think there is going to come a day when the earth acknowledges the lordship of Jesus. Whether or not that's forced, uh, or whether, in, in my view, I think the, the overwhelming message of the New Testament seems to be, especially outside of Revelation, because Revelation is where we get into tricky stuff and nobody really knows exactly how to interpret all of that. But if you look at the Gospels, and if you look at Paul's epistles, uh, what you see is a message of hope, that the gospel will spread, and that we are basically uh, advancing the kingdom of God on earth, and, uh, and that one day we will succeed in our mission, that the, that the nations will be evangelized, that everybody will hear the gospel, and that the earth will be in submission to Christ. Now, whether there is still an element of future judgment uh, against you know, the minority of people, perhaps, that are still rebelling against God, that's possible. I don't want to say that, that there's no way that that's going to happen. Um, but I, I don't think it is biblical to say that, you know, Christians are going to make up 2% of the planet and then Jesus comes and kills everybody else. I, I don't see that in the Bible. What I see is, is the gospel overtaking the earth and, and Christ is seated at the right hand uh, and, and I mean, what, what does God say? He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So you're going to be seated there until everybody's in subjection to you. <laughs> he doesn't say sit here and then in a few years, I'll send you to go kill everybody who's not in subjection. He says, sit here until they are in subjection. So that again, seems to clue into me that when Jesus returns to earth, he's not coming to kill everybody. He's coming to sit on the throne and he's going to be received as king. So again, this is, this is the way that I take these. Um, if you get into some of the judgment passages in the New Testament, my personal view on that is that pretty much all of them, if not all of them, have already been fulfilled. I think that was talking about specifically judgment against Jerusalem uh, in AD 70, the generation that killed Christ. And I mean, everybody agrees some of those prophecies are obviously talking about that, the temple being destroyed and Jerusalem surrounded by armies, all of that. 
whether there is a, a still a future judgment coming or whether Christ is simply going to conquer the nations by the spreading of the gospel, that's kind of the question. Um, and personally, I lean toward the latter. I don't think Jesus comes... I don't think Jesus is going to return and kill everybody who doesn't agree. I think he's going to conquer by the gospel. So that's just my my take on those. We're over time here, though. <clears throat> but if you have more questions, we can talk about this after for sure, because it's important stuff.